0: Hi there, welcome to Next Creator Up. My name is Aaron Prudel. Each week I speak with an emerging or established creator in one of numerous fields to explore their heart, mind, work, and process. Wherever you are in your creative journey, you'll get a number of tips and insights to help you get past your blocks and bring your ideas to life. Hey creators, before we get started, just a quick note you can receive updates for the show as well as special offers and exclusive content, including unaired lightning round Q&A by joining Creative Lightning. It's a free newsletter full of little inspirational nuggets that could help you bring your ideas to life. Learn more and sign up at nextcreatorup.com slash Lightning. Our guest this week is Paul Jarvis. Paul Jarvis is a writer and designer who's had his own company of one for the last two decades. He's worked with professional athletes like Steve Nash and Shaquille O'Neal, corporate giants like Microsoft and Mercedes-Benz, and entrepreneurs with online empires like Daniel Laporte and Marie Forleo. Currently, he teaches popular online courses, hosts several podcasts, and develops small but mighty software solutions. On this episode, we discuss his new book, Company of One, as well as dig deeper into some of his most popular thoughts and ideas about creativity and starting your own creative business. This episode does not disappoint, and I had a blast talking with and learning from Paul. So without further ado, please welcome our next creator up, Paul Jarvis.
1: Paul, thanks so much for coming on the show. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for thanking me. Thanks for having me on today.
0: Yeah, I'm really excited to have you here uh, because as your bio that runs you know, right before this indicates that you are a man of many creations, <laughs> so uh, a, a perfect guest for the show. And I- I'm curious, how do you respond to someone who
1: asks you what you do for a living? I back away slowly. <laughs> um it, it I I think it depends on the context a lot of times. Like if I'm just out and about in town and if somebody asks me what I do, I say a writer. It's just an easy answer and people understand that. If I'm talking to somebody on the internet, then I I typically say like I make things on the internet, because that's kind of what I do. So it depends because I do, like you said, I do a lot of different things. But I, the, most of like they, they all involve writing and they all involve design. So that's kind of the common threads. But like I have software, I have courses, I have podcasts, I have books, probably have other things I can't even remember right now, not because they're not important, but just because that's a <laughs> too long of a list. So, I, yeah, I think I just make things on the Internet, I think is probably the, the best way to, to describe uh, me.
0: Great. Yeah, I uh I came across I came across your work uh through uh the designer for the site, Joshua Denny, and um he he follows you and uh I, I got involved through the uh Twitter uh launch that you had for your book. And I started to do a lot of research, and I came across an old article that you wrote for Business Insider. So I'd actually like to kind of start uh, (laughs) a core of questions there, since I think it's very important for uh, anyone who uh, wants to create professionally in particular. Um, So you wrote an article called, Here's How to Master Your Life in 19 Difficult Steps.
1: (laughs) I was wondering, like, what article was published in Business Insider? I can't remember that one now.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, yeah, that, it was a little while ago. Um, <laughs> so, if any of your thoughts have changed on it, please feel free. But um, so many of your points resonated with me personally. But I'd love to focus on just a few that really jumped out. The 14th step is be foolish and stupid as often as possible. So, yeah, you said that the only difference between someone who is successful and someone who hasn't seen success is that they tried a bunch of ideas and didn't stop trying until something worked. And they were more concerned with what could happen if I, than what will others think if I? I, I think this is a powerful point. And I'm just curious if you have a story of a time where you stayed foolish, you know, it backfired, but then you kept at it and found success
1: yeah I mean most of my most of my life is going against the advice of others <laughs> and just doing things anyways, like even you know when I dropped out of uh university I was going um to to university for computer science and artificial intelligence 20 years ago mind you but it seems like nowadays that that would be probably a pretty in-demand scale with the robot overlords poised to to take over (laughs) although not really like every time i talk to siri i'm like i don't really worry about ai at all because it doesn't understand anything but i think as far as being foolish and stupid i think i one, i think that's my default state as a human <laughs> being which i'm okay with and two i just think that uh, like almost anything in life almost anything where you where you make strides to do better or be better it's mostly unknowns like you don't know what's going to work and what's not going to work until you try it and i think w- with that point most people who do well in business are just the ones who are like, let's see what happens when I do this thing because nobody knows if it's going to work or not. Like we can basically like having, having concrete goals for things like, Oh, I'm going to start a company and it's going to make a million dollars a month and stuff like all of that. Like, I guess it's probably good to have goals. I don't personally enjoy goals, but other people, I I, I think, find them very helpful. But I just think that a lot of goal, like we have to be careful if we do set goals that we're not just pulling them like out of thin air. Like even in my tw- like even when <laughs> when I was more foolish and stupid uh, when I was younger, I thought that to be a business success, I needed to make a million dollars a year, and I don't know where I got that number. That was just a number that I made up. And then I was working towards a goal that didn't mean anything. Like, it it meant absolutely nothing to me. That's a goal I gave up on pretty quick because I didn't want (laughs) want to work 16 hours a day for very long. But I think we just have to kind of take into account that, like, there are no guarantees. Like, we can stack the deck in our favor a little bit sometimes, or we can only take risks that aren't going to break us, which I think are important. And I think there's, uh, there's definitely... A line to be drawn there where I think a lot of people think that entrepreneurs are inherently risky, where all of the ones that I know that do well are only risky to a point. Mm -hmm. So they're willing to take small risks or iterative risks, but they're not willing to like bet the farm, I guess, as people say, where they're not willing to take a risk where if it fails, then everything has failed. Like they lose the house or, or something awful like that. So I think there's definitely a line between like, it's cool to be foolish and stupid, but in like, (laughs) in like a small and iterative fashion where we're trying things because that's all life and business or creating or anything is, is just like, let's see, let's try something, see what happens. And as long as we're not doing things where we're too foolish or too stupid, like risking everything on trying things then I think uh, then I think that's like the the squishy happy middle of, of the road there
0: right I, I couldn't agree more uh, Another point that really resonated from the article was that everyone is weird, awkward, and different. <laughs> and uh, I- I'm really picking out the ones that just really stood out to me. Um, you know, uh, this, this is an idea that I'm sure we'll circle back to because it's an important aspect of what you wrote about in A Company of One in regards to personality. But uh, I'm curious as to what you produced the first time you owned your uniqueness. You know, was it a cathartic or freeing sort of experience?
1: Yeah, it totally was. So I write a newsletter um, every Sunday, which is good because it's called the Sunday Dispatches. It would just be weird if it was released on Wednesdays. But so I've done that for, I guess, I think I started that in November 2012. So it's been six years. And the first thing that I wrote where I was like, This is really weird. This is really different. And I was like, I don't know if I want to send this. Like I was nervous, scared, freaked out. And then I sent it. And then it became like the defining, like if I have one defining moment in my writing career, it's that article. And it was like it was an article about um, my pet rats because I've had pet rats uh, for quite some time and most people don't like rats. Most people think rats are vermin that should be exterminated. But there's this very tiny subset of people who who know that they make great pets. They're very social. They're very loving. They're very caring. They bond. They're hilarious most (laughs) of the time. And like most vets won't treat rats. They would rather just like treat dogs and cats or like that than quote unquote normal pets. But there's this tiny subset of people in the world who know that rats are awesome. And there's this tiny subset of vets who will treat rats like the vet that we have will go out of her way. I think she's like literally a superhero in terms of like what she can do for for the health of for uh, of the animals that we that we adopt. And so I related, that, which is like the weirdest story, because I mostly write about business and creativity, but I kind of related it to the point um, that you brought up here. And in in so much as like, you don't need, like your creative work doesn't need to appeal to everybody. Not everybody needs to get it. Like it's okay if you're weird because you will attract the kind of other weird person that enjoys it and that understands it and that gets it and that then will support you. Like, it's hard to make work that resonates with everybody. And I think that that's, a, it would be very painful to exist if that's what you were trying to accomplish. Mm-hmm. Whereas I think if you're just going after your, your rat people, your, the, the people, that tiny subset of people who understand it, and you can be a beacon for them to draw them closer it, by owning your weirdness, by owning your differences, by owning whatever, then I think that works. And I think that's how most creative people make a good living. Is they are just for a small audience of people, is big enough to support them and that nobody else understands. But to their audience, like it's everything. And it's funny, like I wrote this Find Your Rat People article six years ago. And people, like that's the article that people bring up to me. Doesn't matter what I do in my life, doesn't matter, doesn't even matter how successful Company of One is. (laughs) I know, like, I am absolutely certain Uh that. The rat people article is what people will remember and continue to remember and continue to bring up. Like people still message me that I don't even know on, on like Twitter or or if they reply to my emails for my newsletter, and they're like, oh, I'm I'm one of your rat people, and like (laughs) I get like I get it. Like you you read that article. The article's old, but like it still resonated because it was just me owning. The fact like I am a weird guy. I'm an awkward guy. I basically I think my bio in most places is just like excitable nerd. If somebody asked me what I do and I answered excitable nerd that doesn't really explain it. That just kind of describes how I go about (laughs) doing it. So, Yeah. Well, I know that you'll
0: definitely stand out uh, for me going forward because of that. Because uh, as soon as we're we're done recording, I'm going to, of course, go read that article. And I, I mean, I'm embarrassed to say I didn't even know that there was uh, a community of you know people that kept uh, pets that were rats. So yeah, uh, yeah that's uh, I'm 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 fascinated. And uh, what a great niche! <laughs>
1: Yeah, and it's just like its own, in- and even like in the, in the you brought up um, talking about that in the book too. And it's like, for the longest time, I thought that I had to hide my personality, especially in business, because I've got to be like professional. <laughs> and, so, <laughs> and it's like, I feel like, I feel like professionalism it is really a mask. And I mean, I think I, I'm, I'm sure it's sometimes useful. I don't find a use for it, but but I also don't exist in like the corporate world. But I think like, I'm not the like, if you look at the types of people who write business books, and there's like a picture of me in there, you'd be like, did that guy come into the wrong room? (laughs) Like, what's up with that guy? Like, I look like a bum, and I'm covered in tattoos, but I write about business. And like, I have a, a book about business coming out. But like, it doesn't matter cuz like it doesn't matter like what i look like or how i talk i talk like a surfer more <laughs> than a business person cuz that's kind of what i'm surrounded by but like it doesn't but that draws people in like the people who want to do business and want to be creative and make a living doing it who don't want to be like that prototypical style business person are drawn to the work that i do because they see like oh he's not like that well i'm not like that either and then there's a connection made, and then I think that's a good thing.
0: Yeah, it's very refreshing too, and authentic. And so i i, I very much I very much liked that. And and the book, uh, when I was reading it, it comes across that way as well too. Uh, you know that it it has a lot of uh, personality as well as the research, of course, in it. So uh, I really appreciated that.
1: Cool. Thank you. Yeah. My editor was like, I don't know where you get all these weird stories, but they, they work for you. I'm like, thank you. <laughs> yes. Is
0: that, is that a compliment? Uh, uh <laughs> that's, that's awesome. <laughs> um, so, uh, I, I want to, I want to talk a little bit about the last point in the article before we really transition into the book. You ended with your 19 points. Uh, that all uh, that I think all creatives need to internalize this point, and that's expectations are inversely related to a sense of accomplishment. So, in other words, you know, drop the expectations of massive success and find accomplishment in the doing itself. I know it can be tough to adopt this philosophy if you're juggling full- time work with your passion and hoping to get out of the rat race and focus on what you love. And yet we need to find joy and accomplishment in the doing or we like, uh, won't likely keep creating uh, when we don't see any reward. So how do you let go of expectation when you have a lot of hope wrapped up in it, you know, when you want your life to change?
1: Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> I, guess, I guess I'm not, I, I, the off isn't worth it to me. I don't want to sacrifice being happy now in the hopes of being happy later. So, and what I I mean by that, and as it relates to that, the point that you read from the article is that it's hard for me to create something and hope that something's going to happen because of it. Like, I don't, I actually don't know how to operate in that mindset because like, for example, with a book, like if I'm working on a book and I'm like, this has to be like New York Times bestseller. Like, I don't, I don't know how to be present enough to be creative if my expectation is that it has to do well, or that it's even, or, or even that it's going to do well. Like, I don't feel like it. it's easy, at least for me. Um, it may be for other people, but like, a- unless I'm present in the work, unless I'm present in the process, like it, it's not going to work out and we control so little of the outcome anyways like even for people that have I'll just relate to books again even people that have best selling books they don't know if their next book's going to be a bestseller like nobody knows how to game that system, well nobody knows how to game that system well <laughs> and there's just so many things like when you release a, a creative work into the world you're you're essentially giving up control at that point so i'm not going to pine over things i can't control I, I would rather focus on doing things that I like, that I, I, I would rather focus on the process. I would rather focus on the enjoyment of the process. And I'm pretty sure in that point, I brought up my favorite quote from the Bhagavad Gita, which was, and this is obviously a loose interpretation because it's in English, but basically that we are only entitled to the work, not the fruit of that work. And that line always resonated really strongly for me because it, it, it speaks to 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 the point that I'm making where if we expect things from the work, it's really hard to, that takes us out of being present. Mm-hmm. That takes us out of doing the work. And sometimes the work is hard. Like I don't know any writer or any creative that has an easy time creating all the time. Because it is hard work. That's why not everybody does it. That's why it's a, it's a valuable skill to foster is our, is our own innate creativity. Because it's tough. Like I'll, I'll sit and like, I will sweat sometimes when I'm writing, even though there's absolutely no physical activity (laughs) other than my fingers moving up and down on the keyboard because it's, it's difficult work, but I enjoy the, I enjoy that it's difficult. And I, I'm okay with the fact that some days it's going to be stressful or some days it's just going to suck because most of the time it's not. And if it did suck more, if it did suck most of the time, I'd probably want to do something else. So I'm okay with the, I don't let the disliking certain parts of it sometimes affect the rest of it. And I think that if I just expect that I'm going to like sit down and do my work, there's less pressure, there's less stress, there's less responsibility. Like I don't have to sit down and write a New York Times bestseller. I just have to sit down and write. And maybe that writing is going to suck. And it, if it's a first draft or if it's a first take on an idea, it probably is going to suck. And that's fine because I'll sit down tomorrow and try it again. And if that doesn't work, I'll sit down the next day and try it again. And eventually progress will be made. But I think it, it, if I let go of expectation there, it's easier to, to move forward and be present because I'm not as stressed. But I, it's also more of an accomplishment. Like if I sit down... And my goal is just to write and I sit down and write. Then I've accomplished what I set out to do. Mm. I didn't sit down. I didn't set out to write well because I don't actually know how to sit down and write well. <laughs> I, wish I, I, like, I honestly wish that I did. But I do know how to sit down and write. And so if I go in with my intention of being, I'm just going to write and I do that, then I'm like, okay, I, I'm accomplished. I like feeling accomplished. It's a good feeling. It's like when you check something off of your to-do list and you get like that little rush of endorphins. It's a good feeling. If I wrote down, write a book on my to do list, I would look at that and just be stressed out. Like, (laughs) I don't know how to sit down and write a book. But if I put, like, let's do chapter one's outline on my to do list, and then, like, I can sit down and do that. And then when I do it, it doesn't matter if the outline's good or not. If I get it done, if I make all the points I want to make in point form, because it's an outline, then I feel like, yeah, okay, I've accomplished this. I can move forward. Progress has been made, momentum has been established. And expectation isn't there for it to be amazing because we have no control over that. But the expectation is there to just do the work.
0: Yes. Uh, and, it, and it ties into one of the points you make in the book about start small uh, as well, which I, I know we'll circle back to. Um, you've written and talked about a lot of the ideas in your new book, Company of One, before. What made you decide to write this book now?
1: Yeah. Um, so there's a few things. The first was <clears throat> I always thought that the idea I had about business and not wanting to grow and not wanting to basically promote myself out of a job was unique to me. And then I wrote an article about it. I think it was called, and this was probably two, two and a half years ago. And I think it I was called something like, I don't care about growth. <laughs> and I just put it out, like we were talking about earlier. Like I just thought that I was like a weird person who had this weird idea about business and i was like oh whatever i'll write about it like i did that with the rat people thing and it kind of worked out so i'll <laughs> we'll do that tried it another time um and i was inundated with replies like other people were like hey i actually feel the same way and i thought i was the only one and then i got hundreds of these replies and i was like okay if hundreds of people feel like they were the only one like not enough people are talking about this or writing about this and this is kind of the way that I've been operating. So like this needs to be something that's out in the world. Like this needs to be the the rallying cry for people who want to be in business, but don't want to do business um, the, the usual or the typical way. And before that I'd self-published, I think four or five books and I felt like I'd sold a large amount of books self-publishing, but this time I felt like, Hmm, wonder what would happen if I try traditional publishing, like, I wonder if anybody's going to be interested in traditionally publishing this. Um, and so I just started down that road, because I felt like there was so much to unpack around this idea of of challenging growth and, and determining enough that I was like, this is easily a book. So I've written books before. So I kind of have a, a decent idea of like, the amount of work, or the amount of information that is available that could fit into a book versus the amount of information that could fit into like an 800 word article. So I was like, I've only just scratched the surface with this first article that I don't care about growth one, that there's a lot more. So I convinced an agent to work with me who convinced a publisher to work with me. And then, yeah, I just basically got down a business with it.
0: Yes. Uh, and you know, when I was reading the book, uh, It reminded me of the book by Greg, I think the pronunciation is McKeon, uh, Essentialism. Essentialism. Yes, The Disciplined Pursuit of Less. Uh, And that a core idea in that book is uh, less but better. So since a company of one is a company that questions growth, what you've also questioned is the idea of more generally. Mm -hmm. Can you expand on the trappings of more when it comes to business?
1: Yeah, and I mean essentialism was really just a take on a Dieter Rams quote from the 70s which is less but better. <laughs> so, I mean this idea has been around for for so long but I think more people, you know, a horrible pun, <laughs> more people I think need to be talking about it. And I guess as uh, as you asked as it relates to business, I think that it like a capitalism a, a capitalism I think works to a point. And I think that like, we do need, like, I'm not an advocate of, like, total anarchy. Like, I, I think that markets are good. And I think that profit is something that should be um, worked towards for every business. Because a profitable business is, is ultimately a sustainable and a durable business. Like not many companies go out of business because they're profitable. A lot of businesses go out of business because they're generating a lot of revenue, but they can't keep up with the pace of growth. And so as I kind of dug into this, and I mean, I definitely spend a lot of time reading about and talking to people in like the minimalist movement, and I just didn't see a lot of people like I saw people talking a bit about minimalism in business, but only as like a, an aside or a like, oh, yeah, one more point about this is the, and then back to another topic about minimalism. <laughs> and I really think that minimalism is just the 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 pursuit of defining enough. And I hadn't seen anybody apply that to business. But as I started to dig into it, I actually at first started to find a lot of research that backed it up. And I was like, yes. <laughs> like, I need a lot of research for this book because it's not just me telling my own stories. Um, so I just found a lot of, of data around the fact that a lot of times businesses fail because they grow too quickly. I mean, there's a study done a couple years ago by the Startup Genome Project that looked at like 3,000 startups and found that um, 74% of them failed because they scaled too quickly, not because of competition. Kauffman Foundation looked at that Inc. 5000 list that Inc. Magazine puts out every year, but they looked at the companies five to eight years after they had made the list Mm. and they found that I think it was like 70% of them failed. Same reasons, just because they couldn't sustain the resources required for rapid growth. And I just like the more I got to think about it, the more I was like, mega commerce and like unfettered growth in capitalism is kind of an it's like a new thing. Like big business is such a tiny blip on the radar of of, of like human commerce. Like for the longest time, businesses were family operated, very, very uh, focused on collaboration with other businesses. And they were really multi-generational, like they served multi generations of of people in that area and i was like this is this is cool like this 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 has worked for thousands of years like i think we can get back to like a we can get back to a version of that which takes into account advances like i'm not a luddite so it (laughs) it can take into account advances and things like technology and connectedness and, and on demand and manufacturing and all of that. And we can kind of make uh, business work in a way that where growth is required, but only up to a certain point. And then growth no longer becomes the 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 sole metric of success. I think Grow, when we start a business, we need to grow it because we need to get to enough. We need to get to enough customers, enough profit. But I think that there's a point for every business, and I mean, the, luckily the data really back this up, um, in that there's, there's a point where scale no longer makes sense. Where when we have enough, it makes more sense to optimize for enough than to just keep going after more, 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 more. And I mean, we're kind of like, we live in a consumer um, world and that's kind of pushed down our throats where we always need like newer, better, faster, but I don't think we actually need those things. Like, I think we would all, we would all be so happy and content in our lives if those things made us happy. Right. (laughs) Kind of been shown that that's not the case. So I think like, like I need a cell phone to be able to like text people while I'm out and about, if we're making plans or to use like Google maps to, to get directions. But like, do I need the latest one? No, I think I've, I upgraded my phone this year, but I hadn't upgraded my phone for about four or five years. I only upgraded it because it broke, not because there was like a there was a new Apple keynote that showcased <laughs> some new camera. Like I don't actually care. But I think if we apply that to business, the same can be said, like, do you, like if you're profitable and if you're covering what you need, like, do you need more? Do you need to keep focusing on acquisition or should you focus a bit on retention and I think that the more I kind of dove into it, the more that I kind of saw that like, well, I think there is a, a, an organic point for most businesses where they are big enough. And that's kind of where the book <laughs> took me.
0: Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I, as long as we can keep GPS and I don't have to go back to MapQuest, I'm 100% on board. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, in your book, you said that a company of one model can be laid out in three simple rules start small, define growth, and keep learning. Uh, because I think this is really important for anyone who wants to adopt this methodology, would you be able to discuss the importance of each rule?
1: Yeah. And I think the, and it was just like, it was just me riffing on Michael Pollan's uh, food ideology, eat food, not too much, mostly plants, except for me, it's eat food, lots of it and only plants (laughs) (laughs) because I'm vegan and I really like to eat um but so I think the company of one is more of a a mindset or a mental model than a literal interpretation so just like Tim Ferriss's four-hour work week isn't meant to be like hey bro work four hours a week and stop company of one isn't meant to be just you only can run a one-person business And that's it. Like even myself, I think I have probably four or five people that I work with. They're not employees, but I work with them almost every day. So the point of the book isn't to start a one-person business. It's to just determine when you've hit enough people, enough revenue, enough customers and all of that. So the the three things, start small. Um, It's easier to start small because you can launch faster. And if the point of business is to profit in alignment with your purpose then it's really hard to profit if you're working on your idea, or if you're, your product, your service, whatever it is, for a long time. Like You aren't profitable until you've released something into the market. So I think if we start small, we can launch things quicker. But it's also easier. Our first launch, and I do think launches are not singular events. They're iterative learning experiences. So the first time we launch, we're guessing at most things. Like, we're guessing at how it's going to be adopted, who's going to like it, if the positioning is right, if it solves a problem, because all businesses need to solve a problem for money. And so, if we start small, we can get something out faster, learn a great deal, and then refine, and then launch again, and then refine. And I mean, all of the products that have ever launched kind of follow that sequence. No first launch of anything i've ever done has been more successful than like an iteration on that launch a few months later because the first time i learn and then i adjust and then i fix and then i learn and then i adjust and then i fix so if i start small it's just easier and it's faster because i want to be profitable faster especially in the beginning second um defining growth i think if we don't consider three things in our business is just going to keep growing because that's kind of the way that that the world works so i think the counterbalance to growth and the, the way we define growth is with enough so if we think about how much is enough for my business or for my life or for whatever how will i know when i've reached it and then what will change when i do that's how we define what growth makes sense and what growth doesn't make sense because a lot of times like we want growth in the beginning because it's required. And then we want growth later because it feeds our ego or it feeds our social standing or it feeds our peer comparison. And like, I don't know about you or the listeners, but like, I don't want to run a business that just, I don't want to run a business in a way because it looks good to other people. Or I don't want to run a business because it it feeds my ego only. Or I don't want to run a business because like if I meet somebody at at a dinner party and, I can say like, oh, I have like a thousand employees across like 13 offices in four countries. Like, that's not why I want to run a business. That's not why I want to work for myself. So I think if we define what growth is and use enough as the counterbalance to growth, then we can just make better. And the book is really like the book has no answers in it. Sorry to (laughs) burst anybody's (laughs) bubble. But the, the book gives you a lens through which to make better decisions. And the the main decision that I'm trying to help people make, and I can't make that decision for you through the book because it's different for everybody is just, let's look at growth. Let's define it for each of us and let's make better decisions. And then the third and the final thing, which is kind of based on everything that we've been talking about is, is the keep learning aspect. And so just like starting small and launching and learning and iterating is needed I think that everything, like, we can't stop learning. Like, that's one area where I think that growth is valuable forever. Like, even, like, just looking at the mechanics of my my weekly work life, I spend at least a few hours a day trying to learn something. Like, it could be reading articles. It could be, like I read books at the end of of every day. I watch videos. Like, I'm always trying to take the skills that I have and see what other skills that, that can be built upon those skills and also things just change a lot like the internet and the world constantly changing if i did like when i started um in the late 90s as a designer if i still worked the same way as i did back then i would be building websites in flash which nobody really does anymore i would be using tables which no coder uses anymore for for making layouts like I wouldn't be I, I wouldn't have been able to continue to make money unless I kept learning and, and learning more and even as it relates to um, like customers like I like to have a direct connection with my customers so I can learn from them like I mm-hmm. want to know what they're working on I want to know what they're dealing with I want to know what they're struggling with and where I can help them because if I'm not learning that I'm running a business that's just serving me. And those kind of businesses don't last very long. Like my business needs to kind of straddle the line of like what I really enjoy doing and where I feel I can be the most help. and, And the impact and the difference I'm making with the people who are willing to give me money. Otherwise it's just a hobby. Like if I'm just going to do things that make me happy, then it's going to be things like going surfing and playing ukulele. (laughs) I'm not going to, or watching Netflix. Like I'm not going to be able to make money off the things unless I involve, um, servitude uh, of other people, not just myself. So I think that's the, yeah, that's start small, define growth, keep learning. Those are all, all three points. In the vein of
0: keeping learning, uh, A lot of research is done for the book, and uh, as you said earlier, uh, you were happy to find a lot of research that uh, backed up the points you were trying to uh, make there. And Did you happen to come across a person or a company that maybe changed the way you thought about your own creativity or business?
1: Um, I think everybody that I interviewed gave me some... um, like aspect of like that's really worth considering i mean like uh chapter one starts with and i don't remember every single story from every chapter i just remember (laughs) a couple because my mind isn't i don't have that good of a memory but like I, i start chapter one after the prologue with a story about uh tom fishburne who like basically he was working towards the typical definition of success he went to I think it was Harvard. It was one of those fancy schools that you have in the States. I don't remember which one. And he got an MBA and he had a family. So he got a job and he worked his way up the corporate ladder. And he was like a C-level executive at like a major food brand in the States. And he was just doing that because that was the way it was supposed to go. Like if you go to a fancy school, you get a fancy job and you you do this and you do that. And then one day he was like, well, I'm drawing cartoons all the time. People love the cartoons. People are asking me to draw cartoons for money. Like, what if I just stop working for a big company as an executive and I draw cartoons? Because if I draw cartoons for a living, I can do that from home. He has two small kids. I can do that from home and be with my children in the afternoon. And I mean, I think he lives in like, Um, just north of San Francisco and he has a studio and it's always sunny there. I think (laughs) (laughs) at least that's my perception. The the
0: Marin area. Yeah. You get right out of that San Francisco fog. That's where I'm originally from from. So I think, yeah.
1: (laughs) Yeah. So he has a studio in his backyard. And so he draws all afternoon while his two small kids sit there and draw with their dad. And like, he's basically taken, the typical model of success, which he wasn't very happy at doing, like, yes, he was making money, he was providing for his family, he was doing something that seemed like it was the right thing to do based on his, um, his education and everything that led him to that. But now, so one, he's making more money than he did when he was doing that because he's really talented and he's found a way to position his, his creativity in a, in a way that the market really wants. And two, he can define what success looks like like he can say like success to me is being able to spend time with my kids as they grow up and be part of their lives. Whereas some people like Elon Musk has a couch in his office so he can sleep at work and feels that everybody needs to work 80 hours a week. or There won't be successful. He's paranoid about going away because the last two times he did, I think he's gone away twice in 10 years. Rockets have blown up, <laughs> which I think nobody has explained to him the difference between like correlation and causation. Like <laughs> It just doesn't like, it doesn't make sense. And so just throughout the book, there's stories of people who have been like, hey, what if success is personal? Like, Mm -hmm. hey, what if I get to define, like, if I'm working for myself, what if I define what success is? And maybe that means making less money to spend time with my family or or to travel. Maybe that means I need to make the same amount of money doing something, but maybe I can work in the evenings when it's dark out instead of when it's light out and I can go for hikes or surf or something during the day and it doesn't mean that they're they're not working it just means that they're defining how work looks because I really do think that success is is really really personal and I think the story we're told in the media is that it's not the story we're told in the media is that success looks a certain way successful people look and act a certain way and if you want to be successful you have to make all of these concessions in your life And I think that that's bullshit. Mm -hmm. Like, I honestly think that that's that's a really awful thing to perpetuate in the world for a few reasons. So one, if you're chasing somebody else's version of success, at best, you'll end up with their life and you better hope you like it. At worst, you're going to feel like you failed if you do fail at achieving somebody else's version of success, but you just failed at something you didn't really want. And I also think that, and one of the main reasons why I wrote the book is I think that it's putting people off of, Doing work that they want to do or doing work um, like working for themselves or or starting something or doing something different because I think that like I don't look the way normal business people do in terms of like the way that I act or my personality or, or anything and I think that and even in the way that I run my business like I run my business very different than most people and I think that if we're only shown one version of of entrepreneurialism or working for ourselves then that's going to turn off a whole bunch of people who would probably be amazing entrepreneurs if they just did things in their own way. Because I think that's really like successful entrepreneurialism is figuring out how to do things in your own way. Otherwise work for somebody else because it's easier. <laughs> you, have less ta- you have less tasks because you only have to focus on your job. So I think that's, I don't even remember what the question was, because I just got on such a tangent in a soapbox, because <laughs> it's something, topics that I really, really deeply care about. Uh, no, I mean, you, you basically did answer it. I mean, it was just,
0: if, uh, if you've changed in any way, uh, your own, the way you run your own business or your creativity through the research for the book.
1: Yeah, and- every piece did in in some small way, for sure. Another story from the book. Um, uh, Miranda Hickson, who's a, an interior designer, her dad started working for himself. I, it's probably like the, the eighties. And he had on those lo- on those big monitors that were just I think CRT monitors. He had a sticky note that said overhead equals death mm. on, on the computer. <laughs> I'm just like, this guy is my hero. <laughs> this is my business philosophy summed up in two words and a math symbol.
0: Got a nice mantra.
1: <laughs> totally.
0: And correct me if I'm wrong, the the uh, the, the cartoonist uh, in Northern California there, um, it, did that become a family business, if I'm remembering correctly from the book?
1: Yeah, his wife works with him. I, his daughters are too young to do any meaningful work <laughs> yet, because I think they're like four or five years old. But yeah, I think his wife uh, does project management and, and booking and operations for the business too. Which is, yeah, which is awesome. Which
0: is great. Yeah, it's just more of that, you know, personal aspect of, you know, defining what you want personally. Um, Were there any ideas that you edited out of Company of One or ideas you wanted to cover but ultimately decided to save for a different book? Or I know you also have a podcast uh, based on the book as well.
1: Yeah, I mean, there honestly wasn't... Like, I was actually surprised that my editor didn't... um, cut more things. Hmm. Like I think I spent so much time trying to work out the logical progression from start to finish. And like I did nothing really coalesced until it absolutely had to. So I didn't start to and like I didn't start to like come to conclusions about things until I had like the research that backed it up. Didn't do the research until I knew that like, can I make this point? And so it was just really an iterative iterative process but uh, yeah man there's tons of stuff that i wish i could have written about but yeah it's there there are other books or there are other articles um there are other articles for my mailing list that i that i'll write in the future Or that i have i I finished writing the book a year and a half ago so some of (laughs) of the things that i was like i was getting ideas about other things while i was writing it and i just kind of shelved them and was like i can just write articles about that later or that can be like another book in the future i don't need to worry (laughs) I don't need to worry about that at this second. So yeah, it didn't really nothing. And even my editor, I can't think uh, there was no main sections that he cut. He wanted to actually, yeah, he wanted to cut the chapter on leadership, but I was like, no, because he's much more of a, nor if there's such a thing, he's much more of a normal person than I am. (laughs) And the chapter talks about like the myth of the infallible leader and, being introverted or awkward can still be really good for leadership and you don't have to look like the, the typical A-type white dude um, to, that you see mostly on television to be like a leader or a manager. You can be kind of whoever you want and, and, and make things work in, in your own way. And he was like, I don't know about this chapter. I'm like, you don't know my audience. <laughs> <laughs> like this is speaking to them because this is this is me like i am awkward and introverted and very bad at communication in a lot of ways that are that aren't like the written word <laughs> so um yeah that one, I bet he was like yeah i get it and i mean i think that's the, the the mark of a good editor is his his ideas weren't to take things out of the book his ideas were like can you argue this point to me and if I could make a valid case for it, then he's like, "Good, you, you you've done your job here." So so let's leave this in. So yeah, I mean, I don't think not all authors get an, an editor like like I had, but I think that there are definitely editors who will do that. Who I want and I like, I wanted him to push me. I want, even with the editor, the copy editor that I have for my articles, I tell him like, if I'm not making a valid point, like call me out on this, like tell me I'm being dumb about this. And I'll either argue the point or it's going. And that happens basically every week. <laughs> there's a couple points in every article. But it makes my writing stronger. Right. Like we both have the same goal. Is me not to sound stupid. Which is a great goal to have. <laughs> not just for me, but for the people that work with me. So yeah, I mean, I love that process. I love, the, I love, the ha- I love having to argue um, points and logic <laughs> with the people I work with. I think that just makes for, for, better, for better work.
0: Yeah, and you, you brought up uh you brought up introversion. And uh this is this is a question actually comes uh I'm segwaying a little bit here, uh but this comes directly from Laura Deshain, the, the founder of Tiny Buddha. She's uh she's an introvert and she she was curious uh as uh we're going over uh some of your work, you know, when your instinct is to not be social and stay in your own bubble. You know, how do you push yourself outside your comfort zone or pick the right opportunities to not exhaust yourself? You know, what helps you when you don't feel like peopling today?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that a lot of it, like I think, I'm glad you brought up the word opportunity because I think opportunities are obligations with a fancier title. (laughs) Like they just got, they've got good marketing. (laughs) Really, because every opportunity is has has an obligation attached on the back end. And so I think it's our job as creative people or introverts or or whatever like it's our job to determine what opportunities make sense. And what makes sense <clears throat> aligns a lot to like what's the purpose of the work that I'm doing and I know that if I'm writing a book and it's being traditionally published. Like, I'm going to have to do promotion. I'm going to have to talk to people. Going to have to do interviews. I think I've, I have like 50 or 60 interviews booked over over quite a, an amount of time because I do need to recharge. But like, I know that I'm going to have to. Like, if if my if my goal is to write a book, and again, not a good book, just a book. <laughs> <laughs> but I know that it's going to involve press. Like, I know it's going to involve promotion, and I, I have to be okay with that, or I have to decide not to do it. So for me, speaking engagements are something I don't want to do because I've done them before. I don't feel like they're a good use of my time because I feel like I'm much better at communicating one on one or in the written word, which is why I'd rather be a writer than a speaker. Mm. But I mean, most writers like to do speaking and really that's where the money is. It's not in books. But like I know that that's not something I want to do. And I know and I and I need to make the the determination of is this a decision I'm making based on fear or cause that's bullshit or is, and I'll come back to that. Or is this a decision I'm making based on the purpose of what I want to accomplish? And so I think if we make decisions based on fear, we're never going to get anywhere mm-hmm. because at least for me, I'm afraid of basically everything. So <laughs> if I just said no to things I was afraid of, I would say no to everything <laughs> and I wouldn't have any kind of career. But I know that I can be afraid, I, I can exist in fear and take action in spite of the fear. And that's doable. Like, it's definitely it fills me with anxiety sometimes, but it's manageable. So if, if the only reason not to do something is fear, then I'm just like, no, not good enough. <laughs> me, not good, not a good enough reason to say no. But if it's something that like I, I honestly don't want to do or something I've tried and I don't like or something that is going to take me away from how I want to build my business around how I want to spend my life, like I try in my 20s I to travel pretty much a couple times a week for work. And nowadays, I don't want it like that to me isn't enjoyable. But I know some people like it is to some people that I had a couple authors over yesterday for like a mini retreat. And one of them like, his life is traveling, and he loves it. And it's perfect for him, because he gets to define what success is, and I get to define what success is for me. And so I think if we're making decisions based on opportunities we're given, in in as much as does this relate to how I want to build my business or run my business or exist in my business, or the responsibilities I want to have, then that's a good reason to say no to things. Uh, but if it's just fear, then it's not really good reason to say (laughs) no to things i think so that's kind of the way i do it and i also space things out like like to her to her point about um introversion and not wanting to have people days like i right now my schedule has to be as open as possible to talk to people but i do it on my terms and i do it on the boundaries that i've set up for myself which if people like it's scary to set boundaries but then most of the time if you set a boundary and you're super nervous about enforcing that boundary the other person's like yeah okay cool like so for example i don't do interviews on mondays and fridays because i really like to use those days to focus on work and so like if somebody's booking an interview then we pick a date between tuesday and thursday and most people are available to to do interviews monday to or tuesday, wednesday, thursday which is fine or i try to only book 3 interviews a day because if i do more than that I'm far too exhausted. And then the fourth or the fifth or whatever interview is just bad. And I don't want to do bad interviews. Like, I want to be present and energetic and, and energized and, and good at speaking ish uh, when I'm talking. So, I, I book things only as my calendar will allow for that many calls a day. And I mean, right now, like, I'm booking like weeks in advance, and that's okay because that's just like, if my calendar is full for the days that I'm available to do those things to, to do things that I know are draining to me, they're enjoyable, but they're definitely draining to me because I am introverted, then it's okay. And I think that if we don't set boundaries, other people are going to set them for us. And then we just have to hopefully be happy with where those lines are in the sand. And I think the, the more that we can just be okay with our fear of setting boundaries to other people the the more we're going to get to a place where we're happy with with the work that we're doing because it also it also helps to just have general rules where you can it's not always a case but like if somebody's like hey paul can you um speak at my event if i said no i can't do your event then that feels very personal Mm. but if i say i don't actually do any speaking gigs for anybody then that's just a general rule that i have and so for things like that, the more I can figure out, like, is this a rule for me? Or is just, <laughs> just just something else? And if it's a rule, then I'm like, yes, that's my rule. So if somebody asks, I'm like, I don't do speaking gigs. Like, I, it's just a no, not because of you, but because it's a no, because I don't do that. And so the more that I can kind of figure out, like, the best boundaries for me to do the best work, and to show up in the best way when i do show up in the world the the better and i mean nobody's ever had a problem with that like nobody's ever had a problem with like oh i guess we have to talk tuesday wednesday or thursday or (laughs) oh you don't want to do my speaking gig it's like no i just don't do speaking gigs like try to find a speaking gig i've done on the internet (laughs) they just don't exist and then people like a hundred percent of the time for me at least people have been like okay that's a boundary. I respect that. And I mean, I wouldn't want to deal with somebody that didn't respect my boundaries. Right. <laughs> They'd kind of be an awful person for not <laughs> respecting boundaries. So yeah, I, it's hard to do for sure, but I do think it's necessary, especially when we need to guard our, our energy and our attention and our time.
0: Well, well, thank you very much. And I know L'Oreal, thank you for the very thoughtful yes. answer. <laughs> cool. um, so You've written that creativity thrives on constraints. And of course, when you're questioning growth, you know, that, that's a constraint uh that you you may be putting on yourself uh as well there. Can you elaborate a little on the idea and what constraints you've placed around your own work to perhaps even boost your creativity?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that like as a creative person, we feel like don't hold me back man like don't don't put me into a box man i for some reason you taught like everybody in their mind sounds like a 70s <laughs> <laughs> i think it's just me but i think that like if somebody asked me to <clears throat> like when i was doing um client work and designing websites if somebody's just like yeah i just need a website and i'd be like what what should it look like or what should it include and they're like i don't know just do whatever uh, where I, I don't know where to start <laughs> but if they were like well these are the brand colors or this is this is the logo like this is the style that that resonates with me and my audience then it'd be like okay i can take all these things and and, and really work towards a definitive solution for that it's just like if you said like hey paul go write me a book and i'll, I'll give you all this money or whatever and i'd be like oh, i don't even know where to start mm-hmm. but like if you have an idea for a book and then you work a bit at it and you see that it's valid, then I just think that the, the more con, like, there's more, it's easier to, it seems like it's easier to solve with more, but I don't think that that's always the best solution. Like I think the best thing, like everything has constraints. It's like, if you're a painter, like you need to use something to put paint onto something else. Like you're not going to be, I don't know, do it. Like it's, it, it has to be painting or like the web design has to be design. Writing has to involve words. Like there's all, there's some constraints in, in everything. And I think that that's a, that's a good thing. But I think that the more we give ourselves constraints, the easier it is to, to make the decisions that are boring to make. And it just frees us up to make the actual creative decisions and the, the pro and to actually get down to the creative problem solving which is where the fun is anyways. So like if I have like even deadlines, I like as long as they're not too hectic, I love deadlines because if I'm just told like, hey, I need an article, I'd be like, okay, I'm not. And then like, I'm just not going to do it because you didn't tell me when it was due. But if you're like, I need an article by next week, I'll be like, okay, I know I can work backwards from that and say like, okay, it takes me about a day to, to plan it out and then it takes about a day to write and then it'll take like a day to copy edit. And there's probably going to be some things that come up in my life. So instead of three days, let's say it takes six days. So I had to get started tomorrow. So I have it done in a week. And then I've actually accomplished doing the article. Whereas it's like, Oh, just get me an article whenever I'll be like, okay, whenever is great for me. (laughs) Cause whenever is never going to happen. (laughs) So I just think that constraints, um, the right kind of constraints are always, I think that just always produces good work because I think uh, creativity involves ingenuity. And if we don't need to be ingenious to make stuff, is it really, is it really good? I don't actually know the answer, to that. <laughs> but I think it's a valid question.
0: Uh, a couple of questions that we ask everyone before we dive into, uh, uh the lightning round. Uh, what, what advice would you offer to someone who wanted to be the next creator up in your particular field?
1: Yeah. I mean, (laughs) start small, define growth and keep learning (laughs) (laughs) to take from the book. Cause I do think that that's, I do think that that's good. And, and as well to just like be cool with the process cause you, you don't have control over the outcome. So just be, just be happy and content and cool with, with, with being present in, in the work that you're doing as you're doing it. Right. One of
0: our primary goals uh, for Next Creator Up is to help share good creative work. So with this in mind, what is something that you think is especially shareworthy? It could be a book, a film, a TV show, an app, some cool tool or product, uh, completely up to you. Just something that, uh, uh, you know, really, you really feel is worth sharing.
1: Yeah, We Are Bob. It's a sci-fi trilogy that's the most fun to read. And I mean, even if you don't like sci-fi, it's it's just a fun... I think some people get... It's funny that people aren't really snobby with television, but they can get really snobby with books. And I know (laughs) because I've been really snobby with books. But now I'm like... If I just find a book that's interesting, I don't care about anything else. It can be a popcorn book, and at some levels, I enjoy those more. So, I think the We Are Bob trilogy. I wish I could remember the author's name, but I can't off the top of my head. Add it to the yeah, show. I'll add
0: it to the show notes. That'll be a fun yeah. look up as I uh, I, right. I read all about it. Uh, you're if I, correct me if I'm wrong. You're um, in a sci-fi book club. Is that is that right?
1: Yeah, um, we haven't picked a book recently, but we did read Dark Matter, which is another awesome book. Um we were reading The Gone World, which was super heady but pretty good once I got into it. But yeah, like we're a bunch of um like software founders (laughs) who all like sci-fi and we're like, why don't we get together, not bring up business and just talk about nerdy stuff. And they're all like, yeah, let's do that. So (laughs) That makes sense. Hey,
0: everybody. Before we get into our lightning round, just a quick announcement. Did you know that we record additional lightning round questions with every guest who comes on the show? It's unaired and exclusive for our Creative Lightning newsletter subscribers. These quick Q&As were designed to elicit actionable insights to help spark your imagination and propel you beyond your creative blocks. We uncover favorite resources and books and tackle issues relevant to all creators, such as... How do you stay motivated when it's hard? How do you generate your best ideas? How do you know when an idea is the right idea? What do you do when you are creatively blocked? To get our guests' answers to these questions and more, join the free email list at nextcreatorup.com slash creativelightning. And now, on with the lightning round. What is the most important part of your creative routine?
1: Space. Having the space to create. I don't know how to create... Um, with stress or or looming things and to, to make it as less, as least lightning as possible. If I had to write my articles that go out on Sunday morning on Saturday night, I either wouldn't do it, they'd be delayed or they'd be awful. But if I write ahead of schedule, then I have the space to focus on the writing and then make them good um, in advance. And then I, it takes the pressure completely off. That's the only reason why I have had a regular cadence with that and never missed a Sunday for six years other than when I take um, like predetermined breaks. How do you know when an idea is the right idea? When it's valuable to more than just myself. I think that especially if it as it relates to work, it needs to be something that like it needs to create a win-win like it needs to be a win for me because I like doing it. And then I hopefully get paid for it, but it also has to create a win for a group of other people where they feel it's valuable enough to one purchase it and then two feel good after they have purchased it and sat with it for a bit. <laughs> so yeah, it has to be, it has to be a win-win otherwise it's not worth it for me.
0: What's something you do to ignite your creativity?
1: Get to work. <laughs> <laughs> sit, put my ass in the chair and, and start working. Um, I I like to try to be uh creative on demand because it's I have it's my job. I have to do that. It doesn't mean I have to be good on demand. I don't know how to do that. But if I'm a writer, then I need to just be able to sit down and write. If I'm writing well, that's just a bonus. But I can't like if I was just waiting to be inspired, I I don't know how I would do that. I, I, there are deadlines that exist in the world when you get paid to do the work that you're doing. So I think just like getting down to business. And what I've also found is that if I don't feel like doing the creative job that I have to do within about five minutes of just sitting down and making myself do it, I'm in the flow. I'm happy. I'm, I'm like, oh, so good. Like, I'm glad, I, I'm glad <laughs> I kind of forced myself to get down to work.
0: What part of your creative process do you find most satisfying?
1: Um, like the, the actual doing the thing, like, I love the, the act of, of writing a book. Like I like sitting by myself in my off, in my home office, um, in my house in the woods and just quietly like researching and writing and, and doing that. Like all the other parts are fun, but that's the, that's the most enjoyable by far. Otherwise, I don't think I would be a writer <laughs> if I didn't actually really like it. And it is—it is stressful and it's hard to do. But I enjoyed the—I enjoyed the challenge. If I wasn't challenged, I'd be bored and have moved on years ago. <laughs> um, well, Paul,
0: thank you so much for. Uh, being on the show for giving your time and and for writing the book I, I know that uh, you said you're not quite sure if it's a good book, but i I do read books before I do the interviews and I very much uh, enjoyed it and I think it is a good book cool. and uh, an important uh, for for people to read so with with that in mind, I, how can people learn more about of course you and, and what you're working on and of course find that book?
1: Yeah, so the book is called Company of One, Why Staying Small is the Next Big Thing for Business. It's available everywhere as of January 15th in physical, uh, digital, and audio formats. And for me, that like I don't really exist in that many places. It's my newsletter. It's called The Sunday Dispatches. It's at pjrbs.com, which nobody can remember. So just Google Paul Jarvis. You'll find me. Um, And that's the best place. Like all of the ideas that I have way before they turn into a book or a course or software, like they all start on the list. Like the list is where I spend most of my time. I share one article a week and I don't miss a Sunday unless I'm on like a scheduled break. And that's the like, I don't even have a con. There's no contact form on my website. I think it just says like pretend on the contact page. It just says pretend I'm dead. It, it, do it
0: does say that. If if, <laughs> if, uh, if my designer Joshua did not uh, uh, personally show me the tweet where you had a link, this this entire <laughs> show would have not happened as there wouldn't have been a contact. But like, man, Paul Jarvis is a great guy to interview for this show.
1: Uh, how do I get in contact with him? Uh... <laughs> but I give 30,000 people my email address every Sunday when I send out an email. Fair. Like I get hundreds of replies a week and I spend time replying to all the ones that have questions or all the ones where I feel I have something to say back because that's where I want to spend my time. Like that's definitely like I had my email address on my website and I was just getting like pitches for stuff. And I'm like, I don't want to waste my time with this. Like I love my mailing list. I love creating for my mailing list. I'm just going to spend my time talking to them because they're awesome and they support my business. That's where the, the bulk of my revenue is generated from. So it's like, I just want to focus on them. So if you're on my mailing list, you can basically reply to any email I ever send and it goes to me. But yeah, on my website, there's no way to get in touch, which I think my publicist is like, Hey, you, you really doing that? I'm like, yeah, I'm doing that.
0: Well, Paul, thanks again. I really do appreciate it. And, uh, You can find, uh, of course, the links to everything we discussed in the show notes and learn more from uh, Paul by checking us out at nextcreatorup.com. Thanks so much for listening. If you're enjoying the show, the best way to support us is by leaving a review on iTunes. This helps us reach a wider audience, which enables us to attract more interesting and inspiring guests for future episodes. And if you want to learn more about today's guests and to find the links and resources we discussed, check out our show notes at nextcreatorup.com and click on the link for this episode.